And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Six weeks ago, as people were speculating about who Joe Biden might select for vice president, few would have surmised that Representative Karen Bass of California would emerge as a leading contender. But when you hear her extraordinary story, when you sit down with her, when you talk to her colleagues and opponents in Washington and in California, where she served as Speaker of the California Assembly during a very difficult time, you begin to understand why her name has surfaced. I sat down with Representative Bass this week to talk about her life and career as the vice presidential search process entered its final days. Here's that conversation. Congresswoman Karen Bassett, it is so good to to see you. You're kind of the, at least one of the women of the hour here. Uh, A month ago, uh, people outside of California and the Congress would would have been hard pressed to place your name. You weren't a household name in American politics. Now you've catapulted to the top of the list of vice presidential possibilities for Joe Biden. And I'm wondering how you process all of that. It has definitely been a surreal moment, a surreal experience, but uh, it's very interesting to read about yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, you know what they say in politics, if you're not reading about yourself, then that's not good news. Uh, uh, what was was Mario Cuomo who said? Only in cowboy movies do people shoot backwards. So uh, <laughs> I, th- I think there's some wisdom to that. But you know, it strikes me that your reputation, and I think it's a genuine one, is is more as a even though you've had conspicuous positions, Speaker of the California Assembly and so on, uh, Chairman of the Black Congressional Caucus, your reputation is as a, more of a, a workhorse than a show horse. Um, and you're not someone who's sought out the limelight. So this is a different kind of experience for you. It absolutely is. And I frankly like that reputation because I have been focused on accomplishing very specific things in the community and and through the legislative process. And I have focused on the work. Um, I'm not shy. When I need to speak before the press, I have no problem doing that. In fact, I enjoy it. But it has not been my primary focus is to promote myself or to um, try to rise up in various positions. Is that has that been advantageous to you uh, in the settings in which you've worked? Uh, does that will that does that uh, deference or uh, willingness to allow others to share the spotlight? Is that a helpful tool? Well, I think that it has been helpful to me because I think that people have supported me in leadership positions because they know that I am running for whatever leadership position uh, to really help the body and not just to promote myself. And so when I was in the state legislature, the first position I had was majority whip, which was helpful because as an organizer, to me, a whip was an organizer. And my job was to make sure that my colleagues got their legislation passed. Yeah. That will endear you to their hearts, uh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I want to get back to uh, where we are today, this vice presidential question and so on. But I think the best service that we can perform here is to give people a chance to know you a little better. So I want to go way back to the beginning. Sure. And talk, talk about your folks uh, and your family and a little bit of history. You, you were uh, born in, uh, 
in California. Your dad, uh, DeWitt, was a mail carrier and your mom owned a beauty salon and then uh, became a, a homemaker. But tell me about where your what's the history of the family? Sure. It's an interesting history, actually, because my mother, who was born in 1916, was actually born in Los Angeles. And there were very few African-Americans in Los Angeles that early in the 20th century. My father was the more traditional route of being born in the South. He was from Texas and uh, getting out of Texas as fast as he could after World War II, came to California with the Great Migration. And my mom uh, owned a beauty salon before she was married. When she married mm -hmm. my father, he wanted her to be a homemaker because he grew up never seeing his mother. His mother worked as a domestic, taking care of other people's children. And so he wanted to have a wife that was at home who could take care of the children. I have three brothers, and that has always been helpful to me in my life, especially yeah, in, the, in the world of politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and where do you fall in the, in, the, in the group of four? I have a younger brother, two older brothers. I see. And you grew up in Los Angeles uh, at a very turbulent time in history. In, you were nine or so in 65 uh, when... Or, or maybe a little bit older yeah, when the ri 12. riots, riot, right. oh, 12, riots erupted in, uh, mm -hmm. in Watts. Do you have recollections of that? Oh, very much so. So the first 10 years of my life, I lived in the heart of South Central Los Angeles. And then when I was 10, we moved over to another area that was a predominantly white area. The problem was, was that uh, the white neighbors moved so quickly, I never met them. There was only mm -hmm. one white family that we knew. Uh, everybody left uh, immediately, a Japanese family and a white family. And so when the Watts uh, riots broke out, I was in the other neighborhood, but I certainly remember it very well and people being very fearful that the rioting was going to spread over to where we were. But it was quite, you know, Los Angeles is very big, very spread out. So Watts is quite a ways away from uh, where I lived. What did you understand was going on and what kind of talk was there in your house about it other than than a concern about violence spreading. Right. Well, uh, my parents, of course, were very upset in seeing the violence that took place. Um, I didn't have a lot of understanding about it, but I, what I did understand is that it involved the police, the Los Angeles Police Department, that was very notorious and had been notorious for, for decades, uh, just as a very, very racist police department with a openly racist police chief. And did you, you know, you often hear about the talk uh, that parents have with uh, their children, African-American children in communities, uh, and particularly young men. Um, do, do you remember that, you, those kinds of conversations with your, with your brothers oh, and you? Well, absolutely. And, and I think the talk is not, is viewed as a male thing, but it absolutely is females as well. And I certainly remember having the talk with my daughter uh, too, in terms of how to survive if you are stopped by the police. We're going to talk a little bit later about this because you been you were the prime mover of the police reform bill that just passed through uh, the House uh, in the uh, wake of the, the George Floyd uh, murder in, in uh, Minneapolis. But uh, you were attracted as a, a young kid to politics. Um, You're 14 years old. You were working for Bobby Kennedy in uh, 1968. What, what attracted you to politics at, at an early age? 
Sure. And I was actually interested and attracted earlier than that. Uh, I used to watch the news with my father. And uh, watching the news with my father and seeing the civil rights movement and trying to understand what John Lewis and all the other leaders were doing at that time. And it was very confusing to me to see the nonviolent protesters be violently attacked and, um, and to understand what it was like in the South. I don't really know what my father's uh, experience was in the South, but I know that it was so horrible that he would never talk about it. I know that my father would have been a professional football player, but he was older than Jackie Robinson, so he was not allowed to play uh, professional football. And so hearing about what was going on in the South through my father's eyes, never talking about his own experience, but talking about others' experience, and seeing Martin Luther King and the movement that he was leading and his leadership made an impression on me when I was, I think I was 10 or 11 years old, and I was just in a hurry to grow up because I wanted to get out and participate like that too. And so the first opportunity I had was uh, Bobby Kennedy's campaign. And why were you attracted to that? Why were you attracted to him? To Bobby Kennedy? Yes. Well, because that was something I could directly get involved in. You know, I mean, the civil rights movement in the way that it was taking place in the South was not taking place in Los Angeles in the same way that I had access to. But an election happens everywhere, anywhere, everybody can be involved. And so I signed up my mother to be a precinct captain, and, <laughs> and then I went out and walked the precinct. Did she, uh, did she know that she was facilitating your, uh, your activities? Not really. <laughs> yeah. my your, your, folks weren't really, your folks weren't really excited about you becoming an activist. They had they, concerns about that in, the, in these turbulent times. They did not want me involved in politics at all. They were terrified of it. And you know, a, a really sad thing is, is that I remember when I was young, uh, my parents preparing us that Martin Luther King would not survive. I remember that. And so I remember when he was assassinated, uh, it was horrible, but it was not that I was shocked that he was assassinated because I just remember my parents having conversations after the March on Washington and and other conversations as his profile became so big that they were just really worried that he was not going to survive. And, and ironically, it's the way I felt when uh, um, Barack Obama launched his campaign for president. Yeah, A lot of know, black people were worried that he was yeah, not going to survive. We heard it. We heard it. We heard it. And, you know, as a close friend of his, not just a, an aide to him, um, you know, it was always in the back of my mind as well. You know, we got Secret Service protection very early in that campaign and watching them come in and fit him for a vest mm -hmm. uh, was a really sobering thing for a guy I had known since he'd come back from law school. <laughs> you know, it was a it, it was an unsettling thing. You you were walking precincts for Bobby Kennedy. It was a that the California primary was a pivotal primary. He was running against Eugene McCarthy there. And he won that primary on the night that he won. Uh, he was assassinated. Um, so that must have been stunning to you as someone who was literally out on the streets trying to get him elected. It was very traumatic because I didn't think he would die. You know, I mean, one, he was white. <laughs> I didn't think, even though, of course, you know, his brother had been killed, but I still didn't see that coming. And I had wanted to go to the Ambassador Hotel 
which was not far from where I lived at all. And uh, my parents, of course, were not going to let a 14-year-old go to a campaign event at night. And uh, so I was at home in my bed listening on the radio because, you know, we didn't have 24-hour TV at the time. And I was listening as he was assassinated. And I think in hindsight, as an adult, those two assassinations and several other assassinations were very, very traumatizing. And, yeah. um, and I don't think any of us really thought much about what to do about that at the time. But looking back, you know, that was a real milestone in my life. Yeah, I was a kid growing up in New York, and I was working for Bobby as well <laughs> in, you know, on the other side of the country and also listening on a transistor radio yep. <laughs> uh, that night, although later than, uh, than, than California time. And um, yeah, it was, it was stunning, and there was a feeling of things coming apart. Right. And I don't think it's it's hard to explain what the environment in the country and particularly in the cities were at that time. But you really got enveloped uh, in it. I mean, you you're, you're a high school student. Your teachers are on strike and you ride your bicycle over to hear Angela Davis, the, the leader of the black power movement, who was teaching at UCLA to hear her lecture. Uh, and you got involved in all kinds of uh, of movement activities uh back at the time and that was not uncommon in that in that era well especially where i was growing up and uh where i went to high school it was normal (laughs) it was normal as a matter of fact i remember you know um people going to protest the war in vietnam our teachers were politically active it was the year that the united teachers of los angeles was born so the union was being formed and we worked in, in collaboration with our teachers to support their strike. Uh, so having teachers who were activists, having teachers who really made me question everything that was going on. And you remember those, those years, it felt like that not only the country, but the world yes, <laughs> was coming yes. apart. All the independence movements around the world, the war in Vietnam, the student protests, the Panthers, all of that happening at the same time. And uh, as a young person, of course, you feel and believe that you can change the world and you want to figure out how you fit in all of that. As a young people should. <laughs> exactly, because they do. And, and, as, and as young people do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you were involved in anti-apartheid activity. You were involved in uh, protesting U.S. Uh, US hegemony and in Latin America, in well, and, Africa. And and very much the war in Vietnam, because after I graduated high school, I went to San Diego State, and San Diego was a military town. And mm-hmm. that was in, in um, the early 70s. That was the time when the soldiers were protesting, if you remember. The soldiers were striking. Uh, there was a lot of racism amongst the uh, with the African American soldiers. I remember there was an organization called the Black Servicemen's Organization that a lot of the uh, black soldiers would refuse to go back on the ships. So the turmoil was just just everywhere. Famously, we talked about the attention one gets when one becomes a candidate. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's been focused on your uh, your involvement in Cuba, particularly. When you were young, when you were 19, uh, and you uh, joined an organization that was a, a, a joint project of the government of Cuba and SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, uh, a left-wing group of students back at the time to go to Cuba 
and uh, and work, you know, visit, build houses, and so on. And you made you've made those you made that trip several times, I guess, over the years. The first time uh, I heard about the Cuba trips was when I was in high school because one of my classmates went, and uh, that was during the years when they cut cane. And um, when I went, we were building houses. Uh, mm -hmm. But yes, uh, we heard about that. I know that, you know, the origins of the organization, though, I was not aware of the connection with SDS. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember SDS. I'm sure they were on my campus, but I don't I don't really recall them. So the question is, looking back then, I mean, the Cuban Revolution was barely a decade old mm -hmm. um, and, and all of these things uh, uh, mixed together. What what? What was the attraction to you uh, of it, and what was your what was your what were your observations of Cuba uh, as a young person? Well, you know what? It's interesting, David, because uh, my attraction was twofold. One was to help the Cuban people. I mean, maybe if I had been exposed to the Peace Corps, I might have gone in that direction, but there really wasn't a Peace Corps in my high school. But the idea of going abroad and helping other people and helping a country that's a poor country was an attraction. But the other attraction, and I, I, I weigh the two as to what was more significant to me, was the opportunity to be with Americans from all over the country who were all doing different types of activities, whether it was the war or police or fighting for community clinics, but there were probably uh, maybe 110 of us that were on that trip. And, uh, and that was very exciting. And so we would build houses during the day. And at night, we spent time with the Americans. We had a lot of cultural activities. That's what they called it. I would have called them parties. <laughs> we mm -hmm. had, uh, it was great uh, social uh, activity as well. And so the, um, the group in the Los Angeles area was also composed of the different uh, the different activists from a lot of different movements. So when I came back to Los Angeles, because I went from San Diego, I came back to Los Angeles, it gave me connections with young people from around the city who were working on a lot of different issues. Obviously, uh, Castro was a controversial figure here in, uh, in the U.S. We had the, the, the missile crisis uh, and a, an expatriate community in, in Florida, uh, and uh, a lot of attention to the kind of brutality, that side of his, uh, of his tenure, um, and uh, political repression, human rights violations, and so on. How aware of that were you, were you then as a, as, a, as a young student visiting there, and how much did it disturb you? So um, definitely aware in the sense that uh, what was kind of ironic is that all of us that were there were involved in various protest movements in the United States, but we were all quite aware that you could not have those same type of movements in Cuba. We knew there wasn't freedom of speech. We knew there wasn't freedom to travel or freedom of the press. Uh, we knew that it was a regime that was brutal to its people but honestly, especially during those years, it was not um, the first thing that came to mind. But it wasn't as though we didn't know because none of us tried protesting there. Now, there were issues that we raised there, though. There were issues and problems that we saw 
uh, from my own point of view, um, most of the problems that hit me were problems related to race in terms of black Cubans. And so those were raised and there were lots of discussions and arguments, but no one took the step of trying to organize a protest or anything like that. Because you would have ended up in, 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 in prison. And everybody was quite aware of that. <laughs> you know, this just to cut to the chase on this, obviously this has come up from folks who are not as enthused about the prospect of you being a vice presidential candidate. And part of it had to do with a statement that you put out in 2000, I guess 14, when, whenever it was that the, the year that Castro died. And the, the statement was in its substance uh, consonant with the same language that President Obama used, Secretary right. of State Kerry used. But there was one phrase in it in which you uh, you expressed your condolences to the Cuban people on the passing of uh, of the Comandante on Jefe. Uh, you called it a great loss to the people of Cuba. This is what's been raising everyone's hackles uh, exactly. because it was seen as an uh, an honoring of uh, of Castro. And people here have a hard time understanding why Castro would be seen as a great loss uh, to the people of Cuba. And so I'm wondering what your reflections on that are. And is it a legitimate concern for uh, for Vice President Biden uh, that uh, this is a this has been this has engendered some controversy in the pivotal state of Florida? So I think that um, from my point of view, uh, expressing that and using that phrase, uh, as I have said, clearly would not do that again did not see that phrase, especially coming from Los Angeles, California. Now, if I had been thinking about Miami, Florida, that might have been a different situation. But uh, I was not thinking about it nationally. I was thinking about a message directed to the Cuban people. And so if I had to do that over again, most certainly would not have used that phrase. And my colleagues from the area have certainly told me what was troubling about it. Um, I don't think that that, I understand that that would be of concern, um, but I think what's most, you know, and again, I'm not trying to minimize it, but what I know that is going on in Florida today is COVID and the incredible death rate and infection rate of what is happening in Florida. And I think that is also very, very key. And um, and I think it's important that I reach out to Cubans, though. As a matter of fact, you know, I do belong to an organization called the National Endowment for Democracy, which funds democratic movements in Cuba. And so as people learn more about me, they will see that I'm not acting as though I didn't understand that Castro and his regime was a brutal dictatorship and that the people in Cuba have a desire to be free and the work that I've done in the 10 years that I've been in Congress has been to promote that. So I have been meeting and actually have a meeting coming up in a couple of days with a number of the um, organizations that the National Endowment for Democracy funds. I mean, how looking back, just just to put a button on this, because I want to talk to you about healthcare <laughs> and your own history in healthcare. Uh -huh. um, uh, how do you view Castro? Well, as I just mentioned, I think his regime was brutal. He was brutal. Um, and I think that the Cuban people have suffered because of it, which is why they come here in the numbers that they do. Uh, and I think that 
the Cuban people, what I have always believed and what I found when I went there is that there is a big difference between the government and the people. And so my contact and experience there was about the Cuban people. And the Cuban people have longed and desired for a relationship with the United States. And I feel that us opening up, building our ties, which I was very excited to go back with Secretary Kerry when the flag was raised. I was excited to go with President Obama when he went because ending a policy that we have had for close to six decades that has not changed anything in Cuba at all, to me, is not the way to go. And I think the best way to help the Cuban people is for there to be a strong relationship between us, which is why one way that you can travel to Cuba is a visa that's called people to people. And I think that that's a good example of what we should do, cultural exchanges, scientific exchanges. Those are very, very important. And I think that it empowers the Cuban people to be able to eventually, one of these days, live in a free society. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You mentioned the COVID crisis. You speak about it from the standpoint of someone who spent a, a good part of your life in healthcare. You started in nursing. You became a physician's assistant. Why did you, why did you go into those pursuits? Well, um, I liked healthcare. I mean, as somebody that wanted to change the world, it's nice to also be able to help an individual. And so healthcare is a great way to do it. As a matter of fact, what I focused on was emergency medicine, which is helping people in crisis right at the spot. So you have the gratification of helping an individual while at the same time you're trying to bring about changes in society. Um, so I worked as a nurse while I was training to be a PA. And when I was in PA school and when I was first a PA, it was at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic when there was yeah. this mysterious flu that was killing gay men. And um, so I feel very connected to what's going on with COVID because, and I really feel for the healthcare workers because they're worried about getting sick and they're getting sick and many of them have died. We worried about that every, every day with AIDS because we didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't have protective equipment and uh, we were always worried that we would get uh, exposed. But watching people at the beginning of an epidemic just drop dead in droves uh, which is what we were seeing with COVID. You saw a second epidemic in the community, and that was crack cocaine. Right. Uh, that ripped through uh, the community. And you had strong feelings about about how we should deal with that as a health issue more than a law enforcement issue. And you were very clear on that. And we criminalized the health problem. That's what we did. Now, we did it for a few reasons, which, you know, I understood at the time, but I was having great difficulty trying to change public opinion. Uh, people did not have the same uh, science, did not have the same um, understanding of addiction 30 years ago that they do today. I mean, in those early years, they actually thought cocaine was not addictive. And then when people started smoking cocaine and could consume it in massive amounts, 
then the scientific community realized it was not just, it was addictive in a, in a very, very severe way. What has the criminalization of addiction done uh, in our society, not just in the community you represent, but large, you know, throughout our country? What has the impact of that been? Well, it's been devastating. I mean, it has been devastating in so many different ways, but it's resulted in, in mass incarceration. Ironically, you know, we're going through another addiction crisis now, but it's impacting a different demographic and nobody's talking about criminalizing it. Uh, people do understand it as a, as a health issue and it doesn't evoke the same level of anger that cracked it. You, you organized, you, you started a community coalition to fight uh, this epidemic uh, and to fight for proper treatment of it. Uh, talk a little bit about, about that, because that became a pivotal moment in your career. Well, what happened is at the time I was on the faculty at the medical school, I was running a uh, program called the Health Careers Opportunity Program, where I was recruiting people in the community, especially African-American and Latinos, to become PAs. And uh, I was also working in the emergency room with students. And um, when crack hit, I really believed it was going to devastate the Black community. And I was worried that in addition to the criminalization, there were the health impacts. And then there was the twin epidemic, as you mentioned, with HIV and they were completely related. So I was so concerned about it that I quit my comfortable, secure faculty job and went to South Central Los Angeles at the height of that crisis and also at the height of the Crips and the Bloods because the other part of it was the economic side of right. crack cocaine. I remember yeah. Newsweek calling it an equal opportunity employer. Yeah, yeah. Those were the gangs in... Yeah, central to it in L.A. Um, you know, uh, it, you've you've been outspoken about the impact of the 94 uh, crime bill that was passed in Washington, mm -hmm. which which increased uh, the sort of criminalization uh, of this problem. Obviously, Vice President Biden was the one of the principal sponsors of the crime bill. Have you had this discussion with him uh, about that? And, and I did and, early, and, early on. And um, to me, I view that very differently because the reason I started Community Coalition, the other reason, was because people in the community was demanding law enforcement. They were demanding a solution, the National Guard, bring in anything. And so part of the reason why I started the organization was to change community opinion. So for those members and members of the Black Caucus during that time were split. Some members supported the crime bill, some members didn't. But what I understand is, is that legislators passed those bills because people in the community demanded that because mm -hmm. they didn't see an alternative. And one of the most devastating things about that time period was the profound sense of hopelessness that people had. And so I think when people look back at the crime bill, because I think we're generally a rather ahistorical people, <laughs> we look at that and we don't put it in its historical context of what was happening in communities at that time. Yeah. So while I was fighting the legislation and not, not the crime bill per se, what, what I was focused on was the state 
and the local bills. There wasn't a big way for me to impact what was happening in D.C. But I was trying to work with community people to understand that this was not the solution. And they and people eventually understood because law enforcement could not solve a health and an economic problem. The coalition you created, the Community Coalition for Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment, became a much broader, uh, broader uh, mission uh, over time. One of the things that happened was there was a huge uh, upheaval in Los Angeles when Rodney King uh, was uh, uh, was uh, victimized by police there, and uh, and there were huge riots in Los Angeles. You spent uh, a, f- a couple of years trying to rebuild uh, uh, the the community that was torn apart by many years by those riots. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's right. Well, why did you broaden the mission? What caused you to do that? Well, we actually didn't broaden the mission in the sense that the mission was always to address the root causes of substance abuse. And so we saw the root causes of substance abuse as the economic and the health and the social problems. And so the coalition, which is now 30 years old, I'm proud to say, I left 15 years ago. But um, so if you are addressing the root causes and you understand them to be health, social, and economic, then you're not broadening the mission, but you do take up different issues at different points in time. So one of the things that we tried to build in the organization right away was a youth component. We called that South Central Youth Empowered Through Action. So to prevent kids from going into gangs, I felt if I could grab them and get them involved in politics, they wouldn't get involved in gangs. And then we could show them better solutions than drug trafficking and the illegal economy. Uh, We got involved in foster care. Why? Because foster care exploded. When crack hit, it was the first time there was a drug epidemic that impacted women equal to men and kids were losing their, I mean, and and, uh, parents were losing their children. So the issues we've worked on have always been consistent. I mean, the issues have changed, but the fundamental reason has stayed the same. And all all those efforts led the the community to draft you, as it were, to run for the legislature. People approached you in the community and asked you to run for the assembly. Yes. Uh, Had you contemplated a career in politics before that? No, no, but but before um, the assembly, I did start to run for city council. And mm-hmm. the reason was because all of the issues that we had worked on that were primarily city-based land use issues, we had worked for years with the city councilman who was terming out. And we were scared to death that all of our work was going to be reversed. So I started to run for office several things factored in, including my father getting a a terminal, a diagnosis of a terminal illness. And so I stopped everything to take care of him in the end of his life. You, um, kind of remarkable to read that uh, there were no black women in the, in the California assembly when you ran for the California assembly. How could that be? Well, that's, that was because of term limits. Yeah. So the black women that were there termed out and in fact were in Congress. <laughs> yeah. And so they had all left. And uh, Congresswoman Diane Watson, who had also termed out, she had been in the state Senate, um, said to me, she called me up. I didn't even know she knew me, but she called me up and she said I'd been in the community long enough and I needed to join the state legislature. 
So yeah. um, I wasn't sure really why to do that. But then I realized that I could work on the same issues as an elected official that I was working on in the community. And I continue to do that today. Yeah, but it's kind of an interesting transition from being the outsider right. trying to get government to do the things that you think need to be done to being the insider and having to make those decisions. Well, to me, I think they work together. And so I believe I call it an inside-outside strategy, and I um, am involved in that strategy today, uh, where you have people on the outside. For example, when I got to Congress, I started an organization called the National Foster Youth Institute, which is a private nonprofit organization that organizes foster youth, young adults, to get involved in the political process from a policy perspective, not campaigns, but they should be front and center in terms of child welfare policy. You, uh, speaking of, of children, um, you, you were uh, mainly a single mother. You were married. You, you, you got divorced. You raised your daughter. I've, I'm, I've read somewhere that you also raised your stepchildren. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, you lost your daughter in 2006 in a horrific way. And uh, if I can, I just want to ask you about that and how that impacted you. Well, I lost my daughter and my son-in-law. My daughter yes. was married, had just recently been married. And, um, you know, when you have a traumatic experience like that, it changes you forever. It changes your outlook on life. It changes everything. Uh, but somehow you learn how to go on. And so that's uh, what I did. That happened early in the morning. You you got a call. Were you in Sacramento or? No, I was campaigning for candidates in San Diego. I had just left uh, churches and was getting ready to go precinct walking and um, got a phone call that there had been an accident. Uh, and you knew at the time that, that they, they were told both... me that. Well, they yeah. told me that she had passed away. They did not know who she was in the car with. Yeah, I've had the. Uh some trauma with kids in my own life, but I just, and I've, as a result of it, spent a lot of time with parents who've lost their, uh, their children. And I think those who haven't gone through it think of it as an almost unimaginable pain. Right. It is, it is. And it continues to be, and time does not lessen it. Yeah. How did it change you? Well, um, I think it just takes some of the shine off of life. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. Uh, but you learn how to cope with pain. Um, and, and as people say to each other who have this experience, that you uh, are now a member of a club you never asked to join. That's what people say to each other. Vice President Biden obviously understands that. Uh, Payne, and I know you've had a chance to talk to him about it. One of his uh, attributes that uh, are sort of universally recognized is this, this, this quality of empathy. And you go to his campaign events and you see people lining up who have suffered loss mm -hmm. and just want to share mm -hmm. it. Did you have that experience as well? Did people want to share their experiences with you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then as a society, we don't really know how to deal with death. So people can say very strange things to you, but, uh, but it's because people don't know what to say, and I understand that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. You had this meteoric rise in the legislature. You know, because of term limits, there's a lot of shifting around there. But uh, you wound up as Speaker of the California Assembly, which is an enormous, uh, enormously powerful position. That was the good news. The bad news you, is that you arrived at the worst possible time. <laughs> the worst. The state, <laughs> the state was facing an extraordinary uh, uh, budget uh, crunch. And you had to work with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor then, uh, and the legislature to, uh, you went there to expand the social safety net. You ended up having to go there and cut and cut and cut billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, from the budget. Um, that's a different kind of pain. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and it was very, very, very painful. Um, our state budget went from about 110, 120 billion to 83. So closing a deficit of $40 billion and slashing health care and education and dental care, it was very, very painful. But one of the reasons why it was so difficult, David, was because California was one of three states that it took a supermajority to pass a budget. We had some structural problems. Now, of course, after I left, the uh, voters changed all those structural problems. Yes. But that's what made it so difficult. So we ran out of money. And we literally were issuing IOUs. Businesses were shut down. Uh, people were hurt very badly during that time. And because of that, voters went and they changed the supermajority. They extended term limits because that was the other thing that made it very difficult. We could only serve in the legislature for six years. The uh, One of the guys you uh, worked with there was Kevin McCarthy, who was the Republican leader uh, while you were there. And obviously you worked with Schwarzenegger. What did you learn about, uh, I mean, you had coalition building skills, obviously, <laughs> from the work you had done before. But uh, what did you learn from that experience? Um, I learned that uh, when faced with the challenge, I mean, you have to make tough decisions, period. It doesn't matter how, how painful it is. You have to make a decision. It's really important to make decisions and not waffle around and or be afraid of it, or run away from it, but to walk straight into it. And um, and then what I accomplished, and this, this sounds strange, but I fought four cuts because the other alternative was to dismantle programs. And I felt if we cut, even if we cut deeply, at least when uh, the economy was restored, um, was revived, then the money could be restored. All of that has happened. I was very worried that if we dismantled programs, especially safety net programs, they might be very hard to get reestablished. That didn't sit well with a bunch of students at UCLA who uh, <laughs> tried to turn your car over uh, when you uh, were vis visiting there. You got out, you sat down with them and uh, started a dialogue. Uh, right, with, right. With but they, they must have been uncomfortable to be in the car, though. Well, they weren't trying to turn it over. They were just <laughs> pounding on it. But it was okay. I mean, I wasn't worried about it. I mean, I looked at them and they were me. So, you know, when I was their age, my staff was terrified. But I, I just wanted an opportunity to talk to them, and it was fine. Uh, you were term limited, and so you, you, and you ran for Congress in two thousand and 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 ten, and got elected. Uh, to Congress. Um, and I want to talk about that in a second. There was one early, very early in your term, there was another issue that's become uh, 
well known in the last few days as, as you've become more well known, which was you went to a ribbon cutting at the Church of Scientology. They were opening a building in your district and you said uh, some positive things about uh, about their founding uh, documents, as it were. Uh, and uh, and L. Ron Hubbard, who is the founder, they are deeply, deeply controversial, as you know. They've been banned in some countries as a as a cult and a sect, and um, associated with you know terrible things. Yes, they are. I mean, one of the terrible things they're associated with is uh, anti psychiatry. So they're against, even though they call themselves Scientology, they're against. Science and uh, let me just say that, you know, that was a very difficult situation, um, where what they had wanted me to do was to agree to their creed, which I refused to do. But what I tried to do was pick out pieces that were pretty universal. Um, I'm going to just make one up to make a point, like saying we all believe in world peace. And uh, what happened after that is that they absolutely exploited my appearance there. And uh, I have been able to, since then, stop my other colleagues from doing that because they took my picture around to other members of Congress and said, see, she came. And um, what I thought was just a ribbon cutting turned into be something completely different. And most of the elected officials in the city um, visited the center at different points in time. It feels like, the, you know, from the outside that there was, if not a, la- a lapse of judgment, maybe a lapse of staff judgment in sending you uh, there. Is, is that fair? Well, I think it's fair to say it was a mistake. I'm not yeah. going to uh, put anything on my staff. Good, good for you. I was, I was, that was a tricky test on my part to see how you treated your staff. Um, I would you, not do that. You, you, you've been on the Foreign Affairs Committee for uh, your, all your you know, tenure. The, the other thing you didn't mention about them is that they're known as a cult, too. Yeah, no, you no, I, did, didn't I think I did that. say that. But yes, yeah. no, look, there's a, their, their, their history is, including, by the way, harassing people who are critical of them. Right. So uh, I raise these things at my own risk here. But uh, but it has to be said. So you went it on does. to Congress uh, five terms on the on the Foreign Affairs Committee. You're on the Judiciary uh, Committee. Um, you uh, you you recently uh, worked with uh, President Trump on a uh, on a uh, criminal justice reform bill, the First Step Act, which was a modest but meaningful uh, bill. And you included language that particularly spoke to the plight of of women uh, in prison. Um, the president has made this a, a a signature. He said just again yesterday that he's he done did. more. F- he's done more for uh, more for the African American community than anyone. He said, it, it, with a possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people. I, I mean, I I, I don't want to lead you on this, but. Um, you know, my, my colleague Van Jones at CNN got criticized by some for uh, participating in that process and so on. You had a pretty compelling answer to those who said one should not cooperate on anything uh, with uh, with Trump or people 
uh, who are you, with whom you deeply disagree? My goal has always been to help people to improve their conditions. And there is no way in the world I was going to pass up an opportunity that would lead to thousands of people being released from prison who should have been released from prison or to ban the torture of pregnant women who are chained to their bed during labor and delivery. And having an opportunity to do that I was going to do it in the same way that I'm working on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act today. I didn't see myself as working with the Trump administration. I worked with my Republican colleagues as I am doing right now. Now, he signs the bill and takes all the credit for it, but so be it. That is his power as the president. But he's not fooling African-Americans. African-Americans know that he has done nothing. And in fact, it is extremely offensive for him to say that. Abraham Lincoln, so basically he says the only thing that ever happened to black folks was we were released from enslavement. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are a few people who might object to that. Lyndon Johnson might be one of them. Uh, uh, how about Martin Luther King? Uh, yes. Yeah, how about Frederick Bra- Douglass? Uh, yeah, we could yeah, go yeah. on and on. Yes, Harriet Tubman. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, the, uh, do you think that he is a, a racist? Yes, I do. I don't think there's anything new about that. I think he's second generation. I mean, his father was. Um, They were charged with uh, discrimination, a housing discrimination, sued by the federal government. Um, Everything that has come out of his mouth, not just against black people. I mean, he started his campaign with racist attacks on Mexicans. He's attacked um, Native Americans. And his latest attack are on Asian Americans by calling the virus uh, as the China virus, and there has been attacks against uh, the Asian Pacific Islander community. People have been hurt because of his essentially giving license to racists that might have been a little dormant for a minute, <laughs> but who now feel completely emboldened and empowered. Well, as a healthcare professional, let's return for some for co- to COVID and ask, um, and let me ask you about. Uh, his handling of that? He hasn't. He hasn't handled it at all. 156,000 dead Americans? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) And two years from now or three years from now, when we reflect back and write the story of COVID, the responsibility for a large majority of those deaths will be at his doorstep because he has refused from day one to take this seriously. And what I, what I am the most um, concerned about is the way he promotes treatments like hydroxychloroquine that actually can kill people, can actually make the disease worse. And the idea that he does that and he has a TV network that echoes and amplifies what he says is, is terrible. Do you feel like we're, where, where do you feel we are in this virus? And what do you think the next president is going to be facing relative to this virus when, when, when he takes office? I just hope that when President Biden stands and takes the oath in January, I hope there are not 250,000 dead Americans, but there could be. I hope that we're not in an economic depression, but it could happen. Um, I think the next president is going to face racial strife because for three and a half years we've had someone that's promoted it 
And then there's the intersection of the issue of race and COVID. And, um, and, and the fact that the reason we are in the situation we're in now is because we never responded appropriately from the beginning. So what I hope President Biden doesn't face is to have to restart what we should have done in March of 2020. I hope that he doesn't have to do that in January of 2021, but he very well might have to do that. You've said that you really didn't plan a political career, uh, but here you are. Tell me what you, uh, what you think you would bring uh, to, to a Vice President Biden, to a President Biden uh, in that role that is unique. Uh, I think my ability to work across class, race, ideology, gender, uh, my history of bringing people together and being a workhorse <laughs> and not a show horse <laughs> and focusing on delivering and the crises that we are facing right now, the economic crisis that I've had direct experience with, the health crisis that I've had direct experience with, foreign policy that I've spent the last 10 years immersed in. Um, I think the ability to be empathetic with, if there is nothing that this country needs more, is for a leader who is actually deeply troubled by the loss of so much life. You know, the job is in many ways, I mean, obviously there are great responsibilities that can repose in the vice presidency if the president uh, chooses to give the vice president those responsibilities. But the biggest one is to be ready to serve if, God forbid, you're called on to, uh, to do that. That is an awesome thing to, for anyone to consider. How have you thought about that? Well, uh, as you just described it, but I also think that no one should consider taking the job as vice president if they're not prepared to do that. Now, I have also heard and read Every president say, you can never be prepared, <laughs> but you can certainly do your best. And, uh, and I think, you know, especially the experience in California that is, biggest, that is bigger than a lot of countries, the world's fifth largest economy on the planet, twice as large as New York, twice as large as Florida, um, has prepared me to the best possible way. But again, as I have heard every president say, you can't truly be prepared. And you've said you know you wouldn't run for the office, or you've you've said I couldn't you couldn't imagine yourself running for the office. What if you found yourself uh, again, uh, you know, God forbid? But what if you found yourself as president heading into 2024? Would you rule out running for president? Would you rule out running for it in any case? You know, um, I have to tell you that the most honest way of answering that is that I have never aspired to run. And I can't even imagine that I would want to do that. And let me just tell you that given the massive problems that we're facing right now, I think it's going to take every ounce of attention for the next four years, if not longer, to right this ship that has gone so far off course. And I really believe that that should be 100% of the focus. I read somewhere that uh, among your, your many skills and talents is that you are a brown belt in Taekwondo. 
<laughs> which is a a martial art uh, that has uh, that involves a lot of high kicks to the head. It uh, does. Yeah, but you seem so nice. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine you delivering high kicks to the head. Well, my martial art days, needless to say, was very long ago. But I think that one of the things that you learn from fighting is how to fight strategically, how to avoid fights, how to problem solve in other ways. But if push comes to shove, you can fight. I, I want to just uh, end where we began and talk a little bit about your family. Your parents are, are they... They're both gone, I assume. Yes, they are. What would they think about this moment? <laughs> I think they'd be terrified for me. <laughs> yeah. I think they would, and my as my stepkids are. <laughs> yeah. Why? Excited, 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 but terrified just because it's it's surreal and awesome and bigger than life. Yeah. Would they be aggravated about all the pokes that you're you're taking from? people who are trying to influence the choice? Oh, sure. I mean, my, my brothers are very much a part of my life. <laughs> They're watching it. But, but I mean, I'm not naive. So I certainly knew that this was ha going to happen. Now, there have been a ton of amazing profiles and great mm -hmm. articles. And to tell you the truth, as I watched so many of them roll out, I got a little spooked because I said, oh, my goodness, this is coming. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no one is going to let this happen. <laughs> you've been around politics long enough to know that, and in fact, it isn't exactly. just it isn't just the Democrats. But uh, Senator Rubio attacked you the other day under the auspices of the Republican National Committee, which could be taken as a flattering sign because if they if they, <laughs> they take me seriously, sort of great vulnerability, they'd probably have waited until after you were selected to roll out the <laughs> uh, roll out the arsenal. But uh, but you seem very good natured about the whole the whole thing. Well, I mean, I think that's the only way to be. I'm very clear that the Republican Party has two strategies for this election, and one is to resurrect the ghost of Joe McCarthy and the Cold War, and uh, two is to resurrect the ghost of George Wallace and run a racist campaign. Um, and so I'm not surprised by either. All of uh, the president's language today, you could go back and get clips of George Wallace to hear him talk about the suburbs and the property values, and we're not going to let the low-income people come. Uh, you know, I think that he doesn't use dog whistles. He uses a bullhorn. And I think Joe McCarthy, that found communists everywhere, under every pillow, uh, chased and harassed people in government agencies, and, um, and the racial side of it that's coming, I think that is their strategy, and I think that's the strategy of a desperate party. Finally, you've said uh, that you thought that the vice president should name uh, a woman of color uh, as his running mate. Why do you feel that way? And what would the reaction be if he did not do that? Well, what I said is, is that I think the vice president, I mean, no one knows who better to pick as vice president than the former vice president, but that I would love to see a woman of color. Of course I would. And I think that that would be very exciting to uh, to the base. I think that would be very exciting in terms of African-American, because a woman of color is more than African-American. Yes. In terms of African-American, I think that, you know, people have finally recognized the role that African-American women have played in the party. 80%, 88% of black women voted for Hillary. Uh, and 
we have been the backbone, and I think that uh, that would be recognized. But if he doesn't, he doesn't. He just doesn't. That's it. I'm going to fight as hard one way or another, because to me, this election is about life and death. I don't want to see 500,000 Americans dead. And I don't know why I would think that this president would handle the pandemic or any of the other problems any differently in a second term. You know, when he got elected, even people that supported him hoped he would learn the job, hope he would learn how to behave in the job. Absolutely nothing has changed from this man. So I view it as life and death, and I also view it as it's going to impact us for two generations because of their strategy on the courts. So to me, I'll be excited either way. Yeah. Karen Bass, it is a real pleasure to know you through this process. It's been interesting uh, to watch, and we'll all be watching with rapt attention in the next uh, week or 10 days as the vice president wraps up his consultations. But we know that you will be in the mix and on his mind. Uh, And that's a credit to you for the life that you've led. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.